0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Leslie Sisson.
1: And I heard my boyfriend say, this isn't my house, this is my girlfriend's house. I don't live here. And I remember calling out to him and saying, who's here?
0: That and more, but before that, how great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? No more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule Well, you can with Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it, right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassles of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. Even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code R I S K for this special offer. It's a four week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait, go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Whoa! Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is The Wooden Birds, behind me now, and today's episode is called The Long Road. This is one of those very special episodes, I love these episodes, where one person shares one story for the entire hour or so. Leslie Sisson shared this extraordinary story with me in my hotel room when we were visiting Austin, Texas last. Leslie is a member of the band you hear behind me now, The Wooden Birds, but she's also a member of Moving Panoramas. Their album, One, is out right now, and Leslie and the band will be touring this summer. If you visit movingpanoramas.com, you can find out more about tickets and where they'll be. Now, today's episode, this story might be a little rough. It might trigger some things for people who have been through traumatic situations before. But we feel it is a very important sort of life experience for someone to share about, and we feel that Leslie did a beautiful job of that. Here she is now, Leslie Sisson, with a story we call The Long Road.
1: on a plane heading back to New York City where I was living at the time. I had just been in Austin for South by Southwest and recording a solo record. I had a connection flight in Atlanta, so I had to touch down in Atlanta. The minute I landed and turned my phone on, it started blowing up. We were still taxiing, and I called my dad immediately, and he's like, your mom died. Everything from that point forward was just a blur of tears and hysterically, waiting to get off the plane but it was very surreal I found the next flight to Dallas and I went to the gate there was this gate agent there and it was was a long long line she's like typing looking at her hands like what can I do for you And my face is clearly red makeup tears all the way down my face and she was like what why do you need to go to what happened and she looks right up at me and she runs around and I was like well I just said goodbye to my mom. And then when I landed here, I found out she died. I'm not really sure what happened, but I have to get back to Dallas. She's like, I'm on it. But first she calls over to these other gate agents and she's like, girls, get over here right now, right now. And three women came up and just like circled around me. And I am not a prayer, I'm not a religious person, but they started praying. They started singing gospel hymns. (laughs) There was this long line of people behind them waiting One woman's praying while the other ones are humming and singing. I'm crying my eyes out, but I'm also smiling and laughing because I'm like, this is the most surreal thing I've ever been involved in. I didn't find out until a long time later, perhaps a year later, that she had died of an overdose. She was a recovering addict, and she was living in my house on disability, coming, coming back, I was getting my mom back. She was uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, severely depressed, and she'd been abused, her, you know, all her life. And she'd lost her business, her boyfriend, and her mom all within a month of each other. And then after that, it just spiraled down. And first it started with Xanax and then pain pills and then it was doctor hopping and then it was illegal drugs off the street and then it was living in her car and homelessness. And I was living in New York at the time. The way I found out about her addiction was Christmas 2007. I'd gone to visit her and she was staying in a extended stay hotel and she was like 80 pounds and she was just a shell of the woman that raised me to be a strong, independent, artistic, creative woman. She's the one that taught me to follow my dreams. My mom was my best friend my entire life. She had this song that she loved to send me and it was, I Hope You Fly, it was a country song and um, she just always said, fly. She also taught me how to laugh. She was the funniest woman I've ever known. Biggest laugh ever. Big southern woman, always wore big sunglasses and just big red hair. Her dream was to open a Harley dealership. So, you know, be independent, be cool, be unique, and fly. So there she was, just withering away in sadness. So I on Christmas Eve, I had to carry her 80-pound body into a hospital and check her in and that was the first time she'd ever been admitted to a rehabilitation center she would always say well you have depression and you have anxiety but you don't know what this is like but you will one day because it's in us and something's going to happen to you and you're going to get it but right now i know you don't understand me and i didn't i didn't understand what ptsd was i had no idea i tried so yeah so she got the right help she's getting better and then she died and I thought maybe it was a stroke or a heart attack, um, but I didn't find out until about a year later because my brother told me that he kept it from me because he was worried it would upset me that she died of an overdose and she was taking these back pain pills and she took too many. And my brother, however, he was a drug addict as well. And perhaps they were best friends too. So, you know, I think maybe they used together. Soon after she died, he went back to prison for the second time and he's still there for selling, dealing and making meth. He always messed up and caught things on fire all the time and he stole things from me and ran my credit cards up. My parents divorced, he was a teenager and he was he got into drugs at a very young age. Right before my mom started getting sick, he did say something to me that helped. He was like, "You can't back away from your mom. She's the only mom you have and she's not going to be here for very long." And I have a feeling it's not going to be that much longer. And he was right. It was only like a couple years later and she was gone. She died at 60 and that's young. They both turned to drugs. I never understood how severely my mother and my brother both suffered and turned to the dark side until I was faced with that darkness as well. So after my mother passed away and we picked up the pieces, I had to get right back on the road and go on tour for a few months. I had to hire a band, and one of the guys that I'd hired I'd never met before, he was from the Midwest, he was a farm boy. After my solo tour, he and I kinda hit it off, and he was thinking about moving to Austin, and he did, and we started dating. Maybe a month into our relationship and some change, he was staying at my house with me, in the same house that my mom had just passed away in. We were asleep in my bedroom, and my dog started growling, a little puggle. Her name is Paris, and she never growls or anything. My boyfriend got up and went into the living room to see what she was growling at. And I heard my boyfriend say, this isn't my house, this is my girlfriend's house. I don't live here. And I remember calling out to him and saying, who's here? I have really bad eyesight without my glasses, so I remember seeing this, dark figure follow him into my bedroom, and it was blurry, and when they turned the lights on, I realized, wait a minute, I don't know who this is. Very tall, dark, wearing all black. I could see the gun. He had gloves, a hat. I mean, he was clearly prepared to break into someone's house. And that feeling, I will never lose. That feeling of, am I dreaming? And then you're like, I'm not dreaming. Holy crap. I said, I can't see who you are. I'm so sorry. That's when he pointed the gun at me. And then I was like, okay, it's okay. I threw my hands in the air. He made my boyfriend sit on the bed. And then he pulled up a chair from my desk and sat down and talked to us. And the first words out of his mouth were, I'm looking for Catherine. And I was like, Catherine? And he was like, Catherine, where's Catherine? I looked at my boyfriend looked at me and we were like, I don't, I don't know Catherine. Are you sure you have the right house? And he was like, Catherine. I was a videographer at the time and I was shooting weddings and that day I'd gone to shoot a wedding, a video of a wedding. And I remembered that there was paperwork on the coffee table in the living room that had the bride and the groom's name on it. It was the documentation for the wedding. And I was like, I, I shot a wedding today for, for Catherine. Is that the Catherine you're looking for? And then he held the gun up to me and he was like, you shot somebody? And I was like, no, 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 a video. I shot video of a wedding. Catherine, their paperwork's in the living room. Maybe you saw that? He was like, oh, okay, yeah. Once he realized that there was no Catherine there, he kind of relaxed a little bit. He said, y'all smoke weed? (laughs) And my ex and I were like, no. He goes, well, you're going to tonight. And we were like, okay. He's like, well, that was easy. So he started having this personality. And he said, why are you sitting so far away? Come closer. Why are you all covered up? He had me come sit on the edge of the bed and take the blanket off. I I was wearing a very, very skimpy tank top and underwear. So, I mean, I wouldn't even wear that to the pool. So he could see me. And he said, that's nice. Once I got a little bit closer, I was within a few feet of him and I could see him better. He looked like he was probably in his... Late 20s, early 30s. Very fit guy. He had some tattoos on his neck. He had some dreadlocks hanging out of his hat. He was an African-American guy. Not a bad-looking dude, actually. Um, Something about him reminded me of my brother, and I'm not sure what it was. But I could see him. So he handed me this bag of weed, and he handed my boyfriend something to, like, roll a joint, which we don't know how to do that. And And then he pulls out a bag of what looked like cocaine, and he takes a bump or whatever. He just snorts some of it, and... While we're doing this, he pulls out these pills. He said, I'm going to give you these pills, and we're all going to take them. And my first reaction is, um, what are they? I have a heart condition. I have a heart murmur. He was like, it's X. So we'll all be cool. I was like, do I have to? He's like, it's either this, holding up the pills in one hand, or the gun, and you point that to my face, or this, or I tie you up. And I was like, all right. So he hands my boyfriend the pill first. And in this moment, I feel like I'm about to pee my pants. I'm so scared and I'm shaking on the inside so much that I've never experienced in my entire life. But for some reason, I'm strategizing, how am I going to hide this pill and pretend like I can take it? Because if I take this, it's over. I'm going to be gone. And he already kind of made some advances at me at this point, like checking out my body. And so I dropped it in between my legs. He didn't see me. I was watching him look at my boyfriend while my boyfriend took it, and then my boyfriend took the pill. He made him open up his mouth while he's holding the gun to his face, like, looking around his tongue. And he's like, all right. And so I grabbed it again. I was like, oh, my God. He wanted to see it in his mouth, and he made him take it. So I was like, crap, I have to take it. So I I took it. And then, ironically, he thought that I didn't take it. And he started freaking out. And he was like, you didn't take it. Where to it go? And I was like, do you want me to throw it back up? It's in there. I swear." He was like, the gun was like right in my face. And I was like, crap, he's going to shoot me in the face. And then I was like, I can feel it in my throat right now. If you want, I'll throw it right back up and take it right back out. And he was like, no, I believe you. And then he takes one. He's like, well, look, I'm going to take one too, so we're all cool. And so I hand him the water just because that's what I would do. If somebody's going to take a pill, he's a person. And he looked at me like, why are you doing that? So he's starting to notice that I was like being cool to him. So he took the lid off he took a drink and he wiped it off you know so his dna wouldn't be on it. he put it back on the ground and then he started talking about money I had my my mom's dog was there she was sitting on the bed with us and he was like i like your dog and i was like oh um actually you know she was my mom's dog my mom just passed away here he goes well how old is she do you think i could have her think i could buy her from you and i was like well she's not a puppy she's a few years old and he's like oh she's too old for me I was like, but she's a great dog. She's done so much for me, and she could do a lot for you. I said these things, trying to humanize myself, but also in not like strategically. I was just like, if you want the dog, you can. Have, I'm trying to find her home. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> um, this is weird stuff going on in my brain. I don't know why. I had the, definitely the pill I'd kicked in. So then he starts asking questions about the house, my roommate, when he's going to be home, about the cars out front, about how much money we have. You know burglar questions we comply you know we're like you know you can take our car either one of them i've got a couple hundred bucks in my wallet but we don't have a lot of cash he was like well what do y'all do and we were both music teachers and he was like what you're music teachers like yeah he's like you're not cops are you you're supposed to tell me if you're cops and we're like no we're not cops and he's like you don't know karate do you cowboy talking to my boyfriend and from that point forward he started calling cowboy To this day he hates the word cowboy but he's you know thick accent cute tall slender guy that grew up on a farm young 30 years old just you know cowboy he's a cowboy so he uh he got us up from the bed and asked cowboy my boyfriend to go check the rooms show him around but he wanted me near him so we went into my roommate's room we looked in all the doors, and he was like, you don't have a gun here. We were like, no. And then he starts having my boyfriend just fill up a box of stuff, like he's shopping. Like, oh, well, here's some laptops. And my, my roommate at the time had a lot of computers and cameras. He was a photographer, so we had all this gear. So we just started loading it into boxes, including his computer. And then he starts taking notice to my body. He looked at my butt and said, damn, girl, you got a fine ass. And I was like, uh, thanks? (laughs) And then, of course, dumb me. I'm like, I've always been insecure about it. (laughs) I said it. I swear to God. This is what I would say if I was having a conversation with somebody. And he was like, well, no, man, you got a black girl's ass. It's good. It's fine. You ever dated a black guy before? And I was like, no, I haven't. I was like, have you ever thought about it? This is all in front of my boyfriend. And um, I was like, of course. Yeah, but I just never had the opportunity. He's like, well, what about now? Do you want to kiss me? And I was like, uh, okay. He's like, all right, give me a kiss. I just stood there. I was like, all right. Looking at him straight in the eye. And he started to move in. And then he said, no, we'll save that for later. But come here. And then he held me close and turned me around so that my back was against his chest and I could feel, you know, him against my lower back. And he's like, do you feel that? He was talking about his private parts and I said yes and he goes how's it feel and I was like okay he's like good so he had his arm around me and then the gun in the other hand pointing at my head and he's still directing my boyfriend to load things up and then he starts asking him to get weird stuff like condoms socks, rope, Listerine an iron, a heater, just weird things we were shopping. He was shopping at our house. For weird things, though. We went back into my bedroom, and he started looking at my things. Like, I have a couple of computers. I had, you know, cell phone. And I have a wall full of guitars. But I do have a computer. I had this laptop that had just fallen off the couch, and the screen got cracked. And But it also had a lot of personal information on it, including information about my father. And he started to put that in a backpack. And I was like, that thing's broken. You don't want it which was true. I was like, you wouldn't get any money for it. And he held the gun up to me and was like, what's on this? What are you protecting? And I said, nothing. I mean, well, there are a lot of photographs of my mom on there. She just died. I did a video of her at her funeral, so I haven't actually backed it up. But you know what? You can have it. And he just threw it on the bed and said, no, you can keep it. And so that was a moment where I thought, I can keep it. Does that mean he's going to let me go? He walks us into the living room. The living room's Pretty dark at this moment. And he tells us to turn around, both of us, side by side. So I was like, uh oh. He'd gotten the car keys, he'd gotten stuff in boxes. He asked a lot of questions about would your neighbors think it's weird if a black guy was loading up the car? And I was like, well, we don't have a lot of African Americans in our neighborhood, so I don't know. You could just be a friend. He was like, will they hear loud noises? if they're so close and I was like probably I hear my neighbor's babies crying you know so he was studying when's your roommate coming home he was trying to figure out what he could get away with in the house I think so when he told us to go in the living room and turn around both of us I was like this is it he's gonna shoot us in the back of the head this is it he got the stuff he needed he got the money he got the keys so he's gone he hasn't tied us up and then he was like turn on the light and then he commented about my butt again I don't know, I felt like he maybe thought he was going to do something and then he changed his mind when he saw my butt. I mean, that was really like... He kept going back and forth. He did seem like he was on something and he had been taking some drugs in front of us. But he wasn't like crazy erratic. He was in control. He was in scary control sometimes. And then sometimes he would lighten up. And he would seem like a human. And those were the moments where he reminded me of my brother. Even my mom sometimes. Because they both had their ups and downs and... I don't know. There was just something about him. Especially when... I got a really good look at his face. I could just, it just, I don't know. So then he started getting my boyfriend to just load up the car. There was a point in time when I asked him how he got in the house, and he wouldn't tell me when we were having the conversations about logistics. And I was like, how'd you get in? And he wouldn't tell me. And so we went to the window to watch my boyfriend load the car, and we're standing next to a window. It was in the winter. It was around Christmas time, so I could feel like cold air coming through the window. But it was a window that had an air conditioner in it. I didn't have central air. I had window units. And I looked down and I could see that it was just kind of like half in. So that was how he got in. And I was like, is this how you got in? And he looked at me kind of proudly. He was like, yep. That's probably why he targeted my house. Because that was the only one on the street that had it. So there was this other moment where I'd had my hands in the air. And then at some point in time, because it was so cold, they kind of went into a praying position, kind of like from yoga, just right at my chest. And I, I don't even know why. And he said, are you are you praying? And this is right when we were looking out the window. He looked over, and my hands were still kind of like this. And I looked down, and I was like, I guess I am. And he was like, pray, pray for me. And I was like, okay. The sun was coming up, and... Things were starting to get a little slower right before we left the house, but my mind was still strategizing and I was still in my underwear. Before we left, he did a final swoop and he was like, well, you got to put some clothes on. So you all put some clothes on and brush your teeth, which was weird. And so we went into my room and I um, grabbed like a pair of like slip on shoes at first and I was like, Nope. And I grabbed a pair of running shoes. And then I grabbed a hoodie because it had been raining outside and um, I was like, I'm gonna try to get away if I can. He was dropping things, he dropped the keys and he dropped his weed. And he goes, Oh man, I'm such a bad criminal. So sloppy. And I actually went, You're okay? And he was like, am I? And I was like, you're okay. And he goes, I guess I'm gonna have a kidnapping charge then because I'm taking y'all with me. And I was like, you don't have to. And he's like, no, you're coming with me. And I was like, God damn it. I was too nice to this guy. So, you know, I remember seeing like a box cutter on the floor as we were about to leave and I was like, can I use that? But I didn't know how to use it. it was, that would have been dumb. And if there had been a gun in that house, I wouldn't have known how to use it. fact, there was, and we didn't know it. My roommate had a gun, didn't even know it. But I wouldn't have known what to do with it. My boyfriend would have, he grew up on a farm. He would have known what to do with it, but I still think it would have made it worse. We were just being nice to the guy and polite to him. And I think that mattered. But we weren't like pleading for our lives either. We weren't like, we were just kind of just, I think he could tell that we were good people and that we cared. And if if there was an ounce of goodness in him, then maybe he saw that. So when we were going to the car, we opened the door, my dog took off. At that time she was a runner. She just would take off. And I was like, go run like the wind, get out of here. Don't let him take you. So I left the front door open intentionally so that my neighbors would notice I had a neighbor that would come by all the time, sometimes every morning, to give me coffee. So I left the door open and he goes, what are you doing, are you born in a barn? And I was like, "Oh, yeah. And so I closed the door and we got in the car. We were taking off in the car and then that was when I could tell the drug was kicking in because my dog was running by the car and it was just like slow motion. She was running after us. So I was sitting in the passenger seat my boyfriend was driving and the kidnapper was behind me and he had the gun on the side of the seat by the door so that if I tried to jump out he could shoot but on the other side of him was a flat screen TV so he couldn't really get out that side so it was we were surrounded by crap and we didn't have tinted windows and he was like well this doesn't look right does it does it look like I'm helping you move I was like yeah you're just helping us move totally and so we started talking about this motel on the highway that he was familiar with, and then there was a gas station near it that he was familiar with, and he kind of described it, and I was thinking, I think I know where that is. And then as we were driving, I was like, oh, my God, whoa. And he's trying to tell my boyfriend, cowboy, slow down. Don't do not do anything stupid. And my boyfriend's like, man, I, uh, I, I'm on drugs right now, and I don't take them, so I'm doing the best I can, I swear. And he's like, well, we need to get on the highway, we need to go north. And so here I am. I'm like, well, here, actually, if you turn left here, it's quicker to get on the highway. And lo and behold, that was where his motel was. He was like, oh, wait, pull in here. Cowboy, I need you to go inside to get something for me. So we had a key to one of the rooms, and it was room 210. And he said, I need you to go in there. There are a couple of bags. Just get everything you can find that's bags, bring them in the car, and... You better be in there for five seconds. Don't call anybody. Don't do anything or she's dead. So he went into the, the room and, and he said to me, he was like, do you think Cowboy's going to call the cops? And I was like, no, Cowboy is like a horse. He will do whatever you tell him to do. He doesn't want me to get hurt. He's like, he loves you, right? And I was like, I'm sure he does. And he wouldn't ever do anything to hurt me. So he'll do whatever you say. Cowboy comes out with a trash bag and a duffel bag. And he puts them in to the driver's side next to the, to the kidnapper. The kidnapper opens it up and digs through. And he's like, great, let's go. So we get on the highway. I don't know what it's like to be on ecstasy, but I, I assumed that that's what we were on. Things were just just kind of slowing down. But my heart was racing because I was scared, I thought. And he'd be like, okay, go this way. Wait, no, exit here. And then he was starting to get turned around. Every stop we made, I started like thinking... Okay, do I jump out here? But no, I want my boyfriend to be able to run too. But if I run, he can outrun me because he's twice my size. I mean, he looked like a a running back. He was in good shape. This guy would totally outrun me. And I want him to go after me, not my boyfriend. You know, so I couldn't figure out how to strategize. I did roller derby for years. And this little instinct kicked in where I was starting to strategize, where you find the hole. That's what they call it in roller derby, where when you're the jammer, which is this point scorer, you're like trying to get through all these women and you're finding the hole. So... Somehow, even though my senses were slowing down, I was like, find the hole, find the hole, find the hole. So, we're still going down the highway. We just go north, we go south, we exit. He's just lost. This guy's totally lost. And he was like, oh, man, I don't know what to do. i got to figure out where I'm going to ditch y'all. And in my mind, I'm like, ditch us. Is that, like, in a ditch somewhere? Or is that, like, let us go? But I didn't want to find out. And my brain was like, my dad cannot find me raped and murdered in a ditch somewhere. I got to get the hell out of this car. So we we were driving up I-35, which is the thoroughfare through Austin, and he sees this weird motel and this gas station, and he's like, there it is. That's it. Exit here. So we exit, and we pull into this gas station, and it's one of those gas stations where the store is in the middle, and there's pumps on either side. So there's a door that is on both sides of it, so you can, like, pass through it, if you will. So we pulled off to the side, and he tells Cowboy to go in and get money from his ATM to get some juice, to get some cappuccino coffees and some cigars. Once my boyfriend went inside to get that stuff, um, the gas station had all these, like, posters around the cash register in the windows, like, you know, ads and things, and you couldn't see anything. And so he starts freaking out. And I'm starting to get, whoa, something's happening. And so if it's kicking in for me, it's kicking in for him, and it's kicking in for my boyfriend. And he starts getting extremely paranoid, and he's like, okay, cowboy's calling the cops. Cowboy's calling the cops. I just know it. I just know it. And I was like, no, no, no. Just let me go. Take the car and go. My friend lives nearby. We'll go to her house. We won't call the cops. We'll give you a head start. Just go. And he's like, no, 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 you're coming with me, remember? You're coming with me. Put your hands up where I can see them. So I had my hand on the dash and my hand on the car door. I remember this guy pulled up in a truck in front of us and got out. And I was like, help. Like trying to mouth the words help to him. And I was like, what am I doing? He can't see me. I got to get out of this fucking car. I was telling my hand, open the door, open the door, open the door. And it wouldn't open the door. It would just slow mo and I don't know if it was because I was scared or if it was because of the drug. I was still very alert, but I knew it was like this is this is it. I this, I gotta get out of the car right now. So I was like, look, just let us go. He's like, no, no, cowboy's calling the cops. That's it. You gotta drive. And I was like, Ugh, okay. But I was like, wait, I can make a sudden move. He's like, you get in the driver's seat, you drive. So I crawled over the console, you know, like where the stick shift is in the middle. And I looked over my shoulder, my right shoulder, as I was crawling over to see if his gun was pointing out at me, and it was nowhere in sight. And so I just, like, opened the driver door and just took off. Like, in one swoop. Like, I was, like, grabbing for the wheel, but then I just grabbed the door and just took off. And in that moment, my boyfriend was coming out with these white grocery sacks, and I was like, run! And that was slow motion. It was just like, he threw the bags in the air, and we ran. And I ran zigzaggy. Because we had watched a movie like the night before about some guy trying to escape and he ran zigzaggy and he got away. So I was like running zigzaggy, slow mo zigzaggy, I remember. And he's like, What are you doing? I was like, Zigzagging. And like, we ran around this fence and I was running towards my friend's house. My friend lived in this neighborhood behind this place. And he was like, No, no, let's go in here. And it was another gas station, it had one door. We ran inside and I told the attendant, I was, You gotta call the cops. This guy just kidnapped us. He's got a gun. He's coming for us. And he was just like, "What?" And there was an office, so I ran into the office, and my boyfriend came with me, and we closed the door. And it had like a little, tiny window where you could see. It was a big, strong door. And then I vomited all over it, and everywhere, just vomit everywhere, all over myself. And, and my boyfriend's trying to hug me, and I'm just like throwing up everywhere. I'm watching this guy, and he just kind of like, grabs the phone, like looks out the window. And, you know casually calls the cops, but he stays near the door because that's the smart thing to do because we could be crazy people and he could leave her lock the door if the guys come in or run out. And um, cops showed up, they separated us, interviewed us, they didn't believe us at first, but why would they? We look like a couple of drugged up kids, but it wasn't until the paramedic showed up and the paramedic was like, Do you have a heart condition? And I was like, Yes, I do. He's like, What did he give you? And I was like, I don't know, it was a pill, he said it was ecstasy. He was like, your heart rate's through the roof, you have to the hospital right now. So we get into the ambulance, and there's this really nice police officer in the ambulance with us, and I could hear his radio, and he said, Do you have a puggle? I was like, Yeah, my dog. And they were like, Okay, they're at your house. It's clear that there was a, a break in. They've got your dog. She's okay, and they're there now. And so he was with me the whole time in the hospital. So we went to the hospital. And, you know, at this point, they still weren't sure about us. And so the doctor was kind of like trying to get me to tell her what we took. But then they ran all these tests. And it it was super blurry at this point. Like the vents were breathing. And the doctor, her hair was like breathing. It was just all this weird. It was very, very crazy. But I was still making sense of it. And I remember it all. She came in. And a counselor came in with her. The doctor said, I'm going to give you something to counteract the drug. He gave you PCP. And I was like, what is that? She was like, all I can say is that it's lucky that you got away when you did, because if he took it too, you'd be dead by now. It makes people killers, and you were so strong and smart to have gotten away when you did. I guess my boyfriend was in another room telling them the details too, and he had told them about the motel room, and that's where they figured out who this guy was, because they were looking for him, because he was running from the cops when he broke into our house. He was with a gang that had been staying at that motel, and... They caught the whole gang, but he got away, and he ran into our neighborhood and then broke into my house. So that's how that's how it all happened. And I could overhear this on that police officer that was in the room with me. I could hear stuff on the radio, and they he would kind of give me updates and say, like, it's going to be okay. They know who he is. And once they gave me something to counteract the drug, things were better. They started feeding me. My dad drove down from Dallas, and uh, we were in Dallas for a week, and I was a, a mess, and my stepmom would leave the back door open, and I'd freak out. I'd be like, "Why are you leaving the back door?" When they live out in the country, in the middle of nowhere, close the door, lock the doors. And it was like that for a while, for a good year. And it would slowly get better, but I had severe post traumatic stress disorder. Like if I had heard a, a noise like outside of a room or outside the house, I'd hide under a table. I wouldn't leave the house, but I also didn't want to be in the same house that this crap happened in. I thought, I'm going to have to check myself into a hospital. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get over this. This is the worst thing I've ever felt in my life. I actually almost did check myself into a hospital because I was worried that he was going to come after me, or his gang buddies were coming after me, or somebody else was going to come after me, and I wanted to change my identity. I wanted to to move to Europe. I and mean, I was just like having all these like insane thoughts. You know, I know there were medications that I could have taken to help with this, but I was paranoid about taking drugs of what had happened to my mom and my brother. So I was suffering. Oh, my gosh. Like, my house became a fortress after that. I just was paranoid that somebody could see through a tiny crack in my blinds. Or my front door is right next to my driveway, which is a matter of a few feet. And I was so scared to walk from my front door to my car in the middle of the day. It was awful. The thing that my mother always said was, I can't just make this go away. And so the way she found solace in it was... Pain pills, and then it became more than that. Somehow it made it better for her, I guess, but I didn't want to know. I was about to check myself into a hospital, but the police called and said, We found him. We know who he is. We know where he's at. We're closing in on him. We're going to get him. But we found your car. It was in Temple, Texas, which is an hour north of Austin. Apparently, he had ditched the car, broke into another old couple's house, didn't hurt them, tied them up, took their money and their car and then left. They found our car. But they asked us to come down, and I was like, I don't think they can do it. I cannot get in a car right now. But we did it. We drove to Temple. We positively ID'd him from a photo lineup from a driver's license. It was 10 years old, but it was definitely him. Because I studied his face. And the minute they flipped that piece of paper over and I saw that face, I was like, there he is. That made me feel a little bit better. Once they caught him, the police assured me that His gang buddies weren't coming after me. They gave him up. It took me a a couple weeks to just find some normalcy as much as I could. And um, I'd been teaching music after school to these kids. And I just felt like I needed to not lose that. I didn't want to let the kids down. So I was like, I'm going to try to come in and teach some lessons and see if I can do it. And it helped. Even though it was hard for me to get from my front door to the car and then from the parking lot to the school... I didn't feel safe anywhere, but I just fought it. But when I was in the lesson room and I was playing piano or was playing guitar and I was singing just went away. It went away. Not completely, but exponentially. And the kids made me laugh and those lesson rooms something about like how you're just like in this little room and just like it's quiet and the rest of the world is gone, silent except for the sounds and the music helped. So much, and that ended up being my therapy. So a month after what happened to us, I get a phone call from the police, from one of the counselors at the police station, and he said, "Um, I have some bad news. A few weeks before he broke into your house, he broke into someone else's house and killed them, a man and his teenage daughter. That's all he would tell me. He's still awaiting trial for that, though. But for the next year, I dealt with it. I, I, I remember going to a restaurant... With my boyfriend, sitting outside waiting for our table, and we were sitting next to this couple. I had a hard time going to restaurants for a while, but this was like one of the first times I ever went out. And there's this woman there, almost in tears, because she had such a traumatic event with the cabinet builders and her remodel in her kitchen. I just don't know how I'm gonna get through it. It just—I'm so traumatized by this. I just—the cabinets—they're just not right, and I just have to look at them every day, and. This was only a few weeks after the trauma. I I remember because I wrote a song about it. The first song I wrote about this whole experience. Normally when somebody goes through something and they feel so alone, they feel like they're in a bubble, sort of. But what I felt like is that I was at the zoo and everybody else was behind the glass, safe, in this make-believe captivity environment. And I'm the one looking in. And all I want is to get back into that glass. But I can't. I'm forever changed. I'm always going to be on the other side of that glass. But I went home and wrote about it, and I wrote a song called Believe. And all it was was about was just, you know, I try to lock the windows tight, set the timer for all night, rest assured, said way too easily, we keep it all make-believe. When I would reach for the guitar instead of the bottle, I knew then exactly how my mother and my brother felt. It gets less and less as time passes because I'm working really hard on it. But I still to this day think about my mom saying, you'll understand one day. You don't understand now, but you will. It'll happen. Something's going to happen and your life is going to fall apart and then you're going to understand why I did this and why I'm going through this and why I can't just change it. She's so right. And if it had not been for music, I don't think that I would have healed the right way. Same thing for my boyfriend at the time. He and I aren't together anymore. We're, we broke up about a year. We stayed together because we didn't know what to do. But we also realized we couldn't be together because it was just too hard. And who knows if we'd just stay together anyways. But, I mean, we had this bond. Um, and we still do. We're great friends. He's a musician, and he writes songs. And I think we both found a way to heal through music that helped. And I swear to God, I think that if I hadn't had music, I think to end... The sounds in my head, I may have just ended it myself. When I was teaching at the school, there was this kid there. Her name was Rosie. She was probably about 17 at the time and insanely talented. She could play every instrument, could sing wonderfully, just, and there was just something about her. And then there was a day where I could tell something was wrong. She was kind of going dark. So I talked to her family and the school, and they they were already aware of what was going on with her. She was suffering from depression and having some issues. So I said, you know what? With your permission, I would like to mentor Rosie for songwriting, because at the school we were teaching at, they don't teach people how to write songs they just teach people how to play songs her mother was like yes please oh my god she looks up to you so much and so I met her for coffee and I didn't know how to talk to her about what was going on with her and I was like do you just want to like play some music and she was like yes she was about to quit music she was about to quit everything and I was like well I'm thinking about making another record why don't you come and just play on my record And, and, and that's how I learned how to write music was playing on other people's records and watching them write songs I can show you how I write songs and And then it became a whole record. And it was all these songs that I've been writing since my mom had died and since the trauma. And when I get on stage and I play music, that is my safe zone. And writing these songs and being able to externalize these things and just get it out. And Rosie is starting to write songs. And she's in this band now. Because of the trauma, because of the PTSD, it's not as easy to deal with everyday things. I'm working on it. And I'm finding a way to do that without reaching for the bottle. Damn it! I wish my mother had found that. I really wish. And I wish my brother could find that. You know, he's still in jail, but I get it. I get why they did it, and I understand why that guy was running from the cops and why he did what he did. He was fucked up, and I feel bad for him. And I definitely forgive him, and that's definitely where I am right now. I thought this guy was gonna kill me, or worse. But now I just hope he's gonna be okay and I feel terrible for the families that he hurt but that has nothing to do with me but when times are tough no matter how tough they are if you can find something to get you through it that doesn't hurt you more like the bottle it's the one thing I keep referring to is the bottle because it was a pill bottle or it was an alcohol bottle it's not as easy to tell somebody, Oh, just go take a walk or breathe it off or breathe. That was the one thing that always bothered me. Just take just breathe. It's not that easy. There's other ways though. I mean, if you could find something, like I found music, or if you can paint, or if you can write, or if you can sing, or go take a run, if you have the energy. And it's so hard to find that happy place when everything is gone to shit. But I think just the act of doing anything that relaxes you can help. Instead of taking a pill to relax you, or instead of drinking a drink, which I'm not opposed to that either, but there's got to be another way. And I think the long-term effects can be so much more beneficial than the short-term. And my mother and brother took the short road, and I take the long road, which I'm still on. It's not easy, but it's worth it.
0: All for this week's episode, folks. That was Leslie Sisson, and this is her band, Moving Panoramas. Behind me now, you can find them. Their new album, their debut album, is out now. It's called One, and you can find out about their tour this summer at movingpanoramas.com. I'm going to go through the big old list of places. Risk is going to be appearing next on April 24th. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On April 27th, we're in Vancouver for the first time ever. April 28th is Seattle, Washington. April 30th is Portland, Oregon. On May 15th, we are in Boston, Massachusetts. There's still time to pitch us for that one. Uh, The theme is respect, so pitch us. We are back in Brooklyn on May 20th with our big show honoring the release of The State's new book. Janine Garofalo will be there. Oh, God. I can't even remember who all is going to be there at this point. There's a big, big bunch of people. Carolyn Ray might be doing the show. Margaret Cho is at least going to be there via video a lot of state members are checking in michael ian black michael showalter i i think they might be there john benjamin eugene merman says here's the todd perry I, I i'm unclear who exactly is going to be there or not but just come to the motherfucking show may 20th at the bell house May 21st is Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are still taking pitches for that one as well. The theme is Repugnant. We are also at Nerd Melt that night in Los Angeles. On June 17th, we're in Philadelphia, and the theme that night is Disgusted. We're still taking pitches for that. June 25th, we're in St. Louis. The theme that night is Worried. Still taking pitches on that one. July 8th, we're in San Francisco, the theme is resonant and you can always learn how to pitch us at risk-show.com submissions. All you need to know is there, it doesn't matter if we're doing a show in your town soon or not just pitch us. We are always searching and searching and searching for more stories. So risk-show.com submissions folks. Today's the day, take a risk.